the recording is starting. I, this this lecture is being recorded, and I'll just give it a um, uh, an oral um, call sign that this is ASS 233. The unit is myth and ritual, and this is lecture number one of 2021. Um, so, um, firstly, uh, welcome everyone to uh, to this unit, which is the Anthropology of Myth and Ritual. My name is Rowan Baston, and I am the unit chair uh, of this unit. Uh, what I want to do today in this uh, in this lecture is I just want to make a few introductory remarks about the nature of the unit and um, and then make a couple of introductory remarks about the ideas, the central ideas of the unit. Uh, I do start though. I want to start with um, uh, with a, a, a caveat. Um, and, uh, and that is to ask people if they are indeed first year students in their first trimester, uh, of study at the university. So if you're in your first year of study, this is your very first trimester of study. Um, I just want to point out to you that this is actually a level two unit, a second year unit. Um, and um, for those, you know, you, you will have been through this, I imagine. Uh, but when you look at a unit code, it gives you all that information there so that you see ASS, that tells you um, that it's anthropology. You see the, the first number after the, the letters ASS, two, that tells you the level of the unit. And then the next two numbers are effectively the unit's numbers. So ASS 206, for example, is medical anthropology. It's a second year unit. It's unit number 06. This is ASS 233. Now, as I've said, uh, every other university where I've ever worked, you're just not allowed to enroll in a level two unit, uh, unless you've completed at least four level one units already. The reasons best known to Deakin University, that rule is not in place and nor do they have any systems in place whereby people who are doing their online enrolments can actually get this kind of information. So you find yourself you're looking at a unit and you're going, oh, this looks all right and you find yourself doing it, and then you find that all your other students are second-year students and they know their way around, or worse, they're, they're third-year students and they know their way around. And so for those reasons, um, I caution first-year fresher students to be doing this unit, and I suggest that you should be looking instead at the unit ASS, 101. That's our introductory unit. Okay. There is nothing to stop you from doing this unit, but I do just want to put that on the table uh, to start. I also want to stress that this unit 
has no prerequisites. You don't need to have done first-year anthropology in order to do this unit. And it may well be the case that you're doing this unit and it's the only anthropology unit that you will ever do. And that is absolutely fine. It is for that reason that in the study guide that you can find online, I have introductory remarks about anthropology. So the idea then is that you can get that kind of background uh, about uh, about the unit, about the discipline involved and what makes anthropology anthropology. So I stress there are no prereqs for this unit. Um, I do say if you are a first-year fresher, <coughs> this is your first time at university, if, you, if this is your second trimester, if this is your second university or your second degree, no problem. But if you're a fresher, you might be better off looking at first-year subjects. Okay. Now, as to the unit itself, uh, it lends itself to um, the use of um, Cloud Deacon. Um, anthropology has always been a very strong believer in flexible learning. And by that, I mean that we, we, we try as much as we can to collapse the distinction between off-campus and on-campus. We make our materials available to be used in the most flexible way that suits people as possible. So we'll run the lectures at the time that we schedule them, we but we, we record them. And we run the seminars at the times that we have them so that you have that as close to campus-like experience. But the critical thing is that we understand that you are flexible learning students. Now, it follows from that that... Uh, there is a lot of content available on the Cloud Deacon site. You'll find, in addition to things like the unit guide, you'll also find a very extensive document called the study guide. Now, I explain why the study guide is as big as it is uh, in the very first part of that uh, text itself. My reasoning is simple. You only have one hour of lecture per week and one hour of seminar for a total of 22 hours um, in the trimester. If you were studying at another university, you would have two hours of lectures and one hour of seminar over 13 weeks. So you're looking at the difference between 39 hours and 22. For that reason and the sense that somehow you should get your money's worth, uh, I put a lot of time into that study guide. Now, some of you look at that study guide and think, oh, my God, it's so big, there's so much to read. It will, yes. Um, I'm trying to give you as much content as I can. The study guide is not a substitute for the lectures. The lectures stand in relation to the study guide. The study guide itself contains four modules as well as an introduction. That introduction, I would like that most of you would have read that introductory part already, uh, 
and you're now reading through the first module uh, of the content of the first module. And you should be doing that over the first two to three weeks of the trimester. So instead of having a study guide where it's like week one, topic one, there's the study guide, what you've got is over 11 weeks, four modules, and you should read them progressively over the uh, over the trimester. And think roughly in terms of one module for every three weeks. Uh, and if you do that, and if you read ahead, then you, you're well placed then to, to follow the lectures and, um, and follow the unit. It also means though, that if for some reason or other you miss, um, some lectures, you've got the study guide. It's a, it's a, it's a base, something you can work with. In addition to that, you'll find a link to the library e-readings. Now, amongst the library e-readings, take note that there is what is called a prescribed reading. That prescribed reading is the reading that I expect everyone to read for that week. I'll also list further reading and recommended readings. I don't expect you to read anything that's further reading or recommended reading. It's there for your edification. It's precise, you know, it's, it's for the super keen. It's for the people who want to read more. Uh, and, uh, and I'm always happy to discuss those additional readings with students. But when I'm running a seminar with you, I will keep that seminar focused on the prescribed reading. And I don't want people thinking if they didn't read a, a recommended reading and they're in the seminar and somebody asks a question, I'll answer it, but I'll move on and I'll move back to the main reading. And I want you to feel comfortable that that was all that you read for that week. That's fine. So when you look at the list of readings in that e-reading reading list and you see a massive long list of readings, I say, yeah, don't panic. Have a look and see what's prescribed and then what, and what else is there because it's the prescribed reading and it's basically one a week. This week I'm hoping that people read the piece by Alan Dundas on the earth diver myth. Okay. And then you'll also find them. I and if you're in this, if you're here now, you will have found the cloud classroom. You will have found the blackboard collaborate and you found this lecture recording. Well done. Uh, you'll also see times for the seminars. There is a cloud seminar at 6 p.m. tonight. It may not be that that time suits you. I will record it. What I would say then is if you can't make it to a Wednesday at 6 p.m. seminar, you can always come to one of the other two, uh, the other four seminars, which are on a Thursday and a Friday. Now, those seminars are listed according to the star timetabling system with people allocated, etc., etc. 
if every single student goes to the Thursday two o'clock seminar, I'm going to say, oh, please, can we spread ourselves around a little bit? But I understand that times suit students better and worse. And so if you desperately have to be at the two, Thursday two o'clock, come along. Don't be worried about star unless, as I say, it's just too crowded um, and and we have to work around it. And that also follows if you want to come in on the 6 p.m. seminar on the cloud and you're an on-campus student, go for it. I really want to stress it's about flexible learning. Okay. Assessment, I'll say something more in detail about that. Uh, next, I want to just point out to everyone uh, the set text for the unit. The set text for the unit is, strictly speaking, a book. Um, I imagine for many of you, it will be the smallest and shortest book that you ever get to read um, in, a, in a unit at university. It's, it's, it's very small. So you can say, oh, well, great. <laughs> it's not too big. Partly it's not too big because it has a task associated with it, and that's watching the film. 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick film, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, because that's what the book is about. And that's what we'll be talking about in lectures and um, and seminars. And, um, and you will be writing your essay about that film, 2001, in relation to that book, 2001 and counting Kubrick, Nietzsche and anthropology. Uh, and there's a question from Amanda saying, how many times would you recommend watching the film? Yeah, that's a very good question, Amanda. Um, in this instance, I would say before the lectures, watch it once. After the lectures, if you feel that you need to watch it again ahead of writing the essay, then watch it again. The, the strong advice I give people with watching the film is just let it kind of watch over you, wash over you. It's not a film that declares what it's about. It's not a film with a lot of dialogue to explain what's going on. It's a it's a highly visual film with very sparse dialogue. And the main thing I want you to do in this first instance is just let it, just, just let it be. Just let yourself go with it. Let the film be what it is. And then hopefully it'll get clearer then as we discuss it. And also as you read the short book by Capfera. Now, please note the book here is published in 2014 by Prickly Paradigm Press. There should have been copies available in the bookshops to buy. It might well be that some of you are unable to get hold of a copy. Can I just ask you to have a really, although I'm not telling you this, have a very good look in the readings file 
you'll find a PDF of the footnotes for the book and you'll find another PDF in there. And I'm just going to, that's all I'm going to say. Um, have a good look. Uh, it, uh, so you said I'm a star. I'm not in the film though. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure um, about that, but just um, uh, we'll just uh, you know you'll find the you'll find you'll find readings. Okay, now the first seminar, as I say, the article in, in, in this uh, this week's seminar is is the piece by Alan Dundas on the Earth Diver. Now many of you may not have looked at that reading yet. Uh, although I've got to congratulate um, some of the people who've jumped onto the discussion boards and, and made discussion points about the reading because they're, they're very good. And um, and if some people are wanting to catch up, you should have a look at those posts that are that are already there because they're, they're excellent. Um, I'll make a little bit of time for reading in the seminars this week for people to catch up on that reading by Dundas. And I'm going to say a little bit at the end of this lecture too about, about the Dundas, uh, about the Dundas reading, uh, cause it's slightly crazy. Um, it's, uh, and, and I put it in there deliberately cause I think it's crazy. Um, and so it's just to get us going. In the following week's seminars though, I expect that people will have read the reading before the seminar starts. And so if you're coming to the 6 p.m. seminar um, next week, then, and I think I'm pretty sure the reading is, um, uh, oh, hell, I've got my French author's names confused. Uh It's on the Greek gods. Um, Detienne. Marcel Detienne. I think the reading is by Marcel Detienne. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie. That's it. The gods of, polit- of gods and politics in ancient Greece. Um, I expect people to have read that piece by Detienne ahead of the seminars. Okay. Um, and then thereafter. Now, then please note that the assessment task, which is the class exercise quiz, will then open next Friday morning at 9am. Not this Friday. There is no class exercise quiz on week one. The first class exercise quiz starts next week. It opens at 9 o'clock on the Friday morning. And it closes at midnight on the following Friday. So you've got over a week to sit down and do a four question quiz. Okay. You only get to do it once. But the reason why I open the quiz for as long as I do is that again, I know that people have different work habits, different times. Some of you will do it. Some of you will do it, uh, the quiz at nine o'clock on the Friday morning and others will do the quiz at 10 o'clock at night on the following Friday. Um, 
you can't come back to me and say, oh, I, you know, I didn't have time. The thing was open for over a week. So somewhere in that time, you need to make the time, having done the reading, you need to make the time to just do that quiz, which will take you about five minutes. Okay, it won't take long at all. It's not designed as a trap. Now, sorry, a question came up, but I missed it. Um, so uh, here we are. So are we reading the week two reading before the seminars this week? No, Kate, we're reading for this week, Dundas. For next week's seminars, we'll be reading Detia. But for this week, it's Dundas. Okay. Now, those of you who've taken units with me before, uh, you, uh, you know this request that I always make. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, please do. Absolutely get in contact with me. If you email me, I simply ask that, ask that you put the unit code in the subject line of the email. Now, the reason why I do that is I make a folder and then I make a message rule and every message that comes with that unit code in it automatically goes into the folder. I can then housekeep and I get the messages and I respond. I make sure that that folder has got all messages read and replied to. If you just bang off an email to me saying something like, oh, my essay, it's going to go into the general pile along with, you know, every single Deakin University compliance requirement reminder exercise that I get sent. Something that I don't necessarily pay so much attention to, okay? You put the code in, you'll get a quick response. If you don't put the code in, you may not get a response at all, and then you'll think it was somehow that I've ignored you. Well, yes, maybe I did. Now, as I say, there is no such thing as a stupid question. There are, are, however, some questions that have already been answered. So if you don't get a response to a certain question, you might want to just pull back and think, well, did I put the unit code in the email? Yes, I did. Well, then why isn't he responding? Oh, well, maybe because the information's already there. Have a look at the Cloud Deacon site. Have a look at the discussions, questions about the unit. Okay? That's also where you can post a question. And I'm more than happy if somebody posts a question and somebody else has got the answer, you fire off the answer. Go ahead. If if your answer's wrong, I might change it. But if it's right, I'm happy as. So if we make that a kind of a team effort, uh, we'll get through it. Now, I understand that some people don't feel like asking a question in that general question area in front of other students because their question might be very private. Um, or they might feel that they don't really want to broadcast. You know, they, they've got to, oh, well, no, I don't, I don't want to sound ignorant in front of everybody else. Then just email me, okay? Don't be shy. Really, don't be shy. Okay. 
I, I don't think I actually have to tell you people not to be shy the way you're posting all these chat questions at me. So that's good. Uh, what's this one? Sorry, can I ask if we can join the day star seminars via the club? Yes, you can. I, and as, as an example, I, I thought I'd answered that question. If you, if, if Thursday at, at two o'clock suits you, go for it. Okay. If Friday at one o'clock suits you, go for it. I'm not too bothered. If I've got 150 people in Friday at one o'clock, I might ask people to, to find another time. But if I don't, then it's perfectly good. And the one thing, if I've got one of you there, we'll run a seminar. Oh, that's a bit scary. <laughs> Not really. Okay. Uh, assessment. Now, they've changed the assessment on me this year. I used to have quizzes, longer quizzes, that were quizzes on the study guide. Um uh, that was, that were part of the assessment, um, until last year, but then the, the, the education, uh, people, um, compliance people, um, made me change it. So this is what the assessment structure's like. I've kept the quizzes there. I haven't made them visible and they're not worth any marks. But what I was thinking I might do is I might just put the quizzes up there. And they're just something that if you feel like doing the quiz, uh, you can just do it. You don't earn any marks for it and there's no obligation to do it. Um, and I'll just put them there. I've just got to make sure that everything's worked out in such a way that they suddenly don't start generating marks that go into your grade section and that would stuff everything up. So it's just a technical matter at the moment. But as I say, those quizzes... They don't exist anymore. This is the assessment. It's an essay which is focusing on myth and the set text, 2001 and counting. A journal piece which is done at the end of the um, trimester, which is focusing on a ritual and involves a certain kind of observation exercise. It might be a, uh, to, to look at an event uh, of your choosing and to, de to describe it and to discuss it as to whether or not it is a ritual. And what are the features that would say, yes, this is a ritual? And what are the features that would say, no, it's not a ritual? Okay, so that's the journal. There'll be more information about that in the second half of the trimester. And then the third item I've already mentioned are those class exercise quizzes. The class exercise quizzes were not the same as the, the, the study guide quizzes. The study guide quizzes consisted of 10, 10 and 20 questions. These class exercise quizzes are about the weekly prescribed reading and they just have four questions. Now they're still there. Each one of those is worth 2% and it's for a total of 20% for the, for the, for the unit as a whole. So that's the breakdown of the assessment. Those other quizzes that I was talking about no longer feature in the assessment, but I'm going to work out if people want to do them, that they can. But 
for no marks. Okay, so that's the assessment structure. The timing of the assessment. Okay, so the weekly class exercise start in week two at the end of week two, and they just tick along until the end of week 10 on a weekly basis. The essay due date, if you have a look under assessments in the Cloud Deacon site or you have a look in the unit guide, you'll see the due date for the essay, which from memory is early June, I think. Um, And then the journal due date is right at the end of the trimester. Okay, so that's the assessment structure. Now, just to come back and make some general introductory points. Because as I say, I know some of you have studied anthropology before and others haven't. And that's absolutely fine. But let's get one thing on the table, and that is what it is that anthropology is. It is, by its very title, anthropology, anthropology, the study or science of humanity, anthropos. That is to say, it is a science whose focus is the human being. And I stress its scientific claims, although I'm going to make a distinction about humanities and social sciences in a second. Um, because partly I want to stress its scientific claims because I, I want to kind of rest back uh, from what I call the technological sciences. Uh, the, the, the very word itself, science, which just name, means knowledge. Uh, the technological sciences or hard sciences as they're called would oftentimes claim a kind of monopoly on science, but that's not quite fair. Um, and indeed it's an interesting question, the relationship of humanity to technology and the technological sciences. It's a big theme that we're going to be talking about in this unit. And when you think about 2001, the space odyssey, technology is very much at the center of that, of that story. So when you think about anthropology, then I want to say it's the study of the human. And when I say the human, I mean, in the broadest possible sense. And with that, the whole human. This is why you'll find, for example, physical anthropology. And physical anthropologists study things like genetics and blood groups and human evolution and the relationship between humans and other members of the hominem family. Um, and, and groupings, the other species. Now, you think to yourself, oh, hang on. So is this going to be a study of those, of, of, you know, of orangutans? No, it isn't. The reason why I mention it is that at the heart of anthropology is a strong sense of holism. That is to say, we study all human beings in all sorts of contexts. Now, a lot of people think that as a result, we study people who live in remote forest parts of the world, in the Amazon or in the New Guinea Highlands or Central Africa or something like that. 
so that anthropologists are traditionally thought of as the people who studied the non-Western, non-modern peoples of the world. It's true, we do study those people, but we also study everybody else. We only study those people as they are human beings. And it's not that we study, you know, the Ongo Bongo because they're the Ongo Bongo. We study humans no matter what the context. And in that way, we often differ from the other sciences who tend to focus, the social sciences, who tend to focus only on the study of modern Western societies. So you'll find, for example, if you're studying sociology, you'll be talking at great length about Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the USA. If you're lucky, they might mention Germany or France or Spain. Very unusual. If you study criminology, for example, you can come to the conclusion that the only criminals that exist in the world speak English and that their studies are the studies of, again, Canada, the US, uh, the UK, and so on. They tend to focus down, and they study, they tend to study the comparison of small differences, where anthropology is always looking out at the big sense of the human. And um, And this is not to be rude, although I can be, but this is not to be rude about psychology or sociology or criminology. It is to ask, I wonder why they narrow it down so much when there are so many other human beings out there. And I feel sometimes that they're a little bit dismissive. Um, but, you know, be that as it may. In anthropology, we study everybody. Now, that raises an interesting question as to whether anthropology is the study of, uh, as the study of human beings is a social science discipline or a humanities discipline. Now, I'm not sure that many of you have encountered um, the distinction between the humanities and the social sciences, why some discipline areas like history or philosophy, or literary studies are considered to be humanities, and why other studies like economics, sociology, politics, are social sciences. Well, broadly put, the humanities disciplines study what it is that human beings create. So we look at things like literature the other creative arts, music, drama, and so on. But we also consider within the realm of creativity uh, the study of history and the study of philosophy. In contrast, the social sciences study people's behaviour. The social sciences study patterns 
of human practice or how people act. In the study of such patterns of behaviour, the social sciences don't restrict their focus on human practice to the creative output of human beings. They also consider other critical dimensions of human behaviour. Now, you can ask yourself, well, isn't history then a social science? And the argument I would, and I would say, well, actually, I think it's, it's in a grey area to me, history, because I don't think history is just the study of human creativity in the way that literary studies is the study of human creativity or, or, or the, or creative arts is the study of human creativity. But I also want to stress that when I look at the social sciences, like anthropology, and it seems to me that anthropology is also a discipline which is very, very closely aligned with philosophy and very interested in the kinds of concepts that human beings create. And I don't think anthropology simply studies the patterns of behaviour. It also studies the nature of the production of human meaning. The distinction, therefore, between the humanities and the social sciences is, I think, a loose one. There's an awful lot of blurring between between the categories of what's the humanities and what's the social science. And that's why I put this picture up here. Um, uh, uh, that's, I'll get onto that question in a second. Is the scientific method relevant to distinguish them? Uh, that opens a whole other can of worms, Michael. If science was reducible to its method, uh, then there'd be an awful lot of sciences that are not scientific. Uh, so it's not simply about the nature of the method. It's to do with the nature of the objects that they study. If you have a look at this picture, you'd ask yourself, all right, so what would the humanities study in a picture like this? The portrait? Uh, the painting, um, the frame, um, the frame of the picture. Uh, we'd also be looking at possibly the costume of the, of the man in the photograph, the bearded man who's sitting on the chair. Does anyone recognize uh, this photograph where it came from? It's a recent photograph from the early part of this year. It's not one of the photographs, uh, not one of the photographs, I ah, indeed. So some, yes, so, so many of you do pick it. Yes, this is a photograph, uh, of one of the people who stormed the Capitol building, uh, in January of 2021. This particular guy who was subsequently identified, uh, I think his name is Aaron Mostovsky, 
he was subsequently identified and he's been charged uh, for for taking part in the riots. He's the son of a judge <laughs> in Brooklyn, uh, which I find rather funny. I also find rather interesting about this picture. Does anybody know who the man in the portrait is by any chance? No? One of the presidents. Uh, no, actually. Interestingly, <laughs> this that portrait is of a man called Charles Sumner. And he is, uh, and I, and I'll write, I have to confess, I contacted my American sister-in-law and said, can you please tell me who this is? I don't know who it is. Um, and she, she wrote back and said, yes, it's Charles Sumner. Charles Sumner is one of the founders of the Republican Party. He was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln's. Uh, he was one of the great out, uh, speakers against slavery. So he was one of the great, uh, people who mobilized the anti-slavery campaign in the American uh, Parliament, and he has the record of being the only member of the US um, um, political system who was assaulted in office uh, after he gave a long speech. Thank you. That's it. An American statesman and senator from Massachusetts. And he got, and he got hit over their head. Uh, so he is the product, he's the previous instance of someone who's been assaulted in the Capitol building. Now, all interesting stuff. Uh, the, uh, the great thing about this photograph is that I want you to think about it in terms of this distinction that I'm drawing between the humanities and the social sciences. And so if we think of it in terms of creativity, behavior, and how different disciplines <coughs> would 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 focus in on something in a picture like this what they would look at uh you know right down to the design of the furniture um, um and i love the fact that mr mostovsky brought his own covid-19 protective shield uh then we can you know we can begin to recognize uh, we can begin to recognize that distinction between the humanities and the social sciences. Now, for some people, you say science and they suddenly think it's all about numbers. And for many people, doing a subject on myth and ritual, the idea that you might be taking a scientific approach to myth and ritual is positively frightening. Uh, and I think that's a great pity. Um, those of you who've done ASS 102 with me know that I have a bit of a soapbox rant about how badly we all get taught mathematics at school and how uh, if we really developed a better appreciation of number. I think many of us would not be so frightened about mathematics, um, but I have a feeling that we, you know, we need better maths teachers in that regard, and we need to rethink what numbers are, in fact. 
But this is not a subject uh, that has a lot of numbers in it. So when I say science, I'm not simply talking about mathematics. I'm talking about the study of all of these things here in this collage or montage of, of, of pictures. And in one way or another, at different points in this unit, we are going to be looking at all of these things here. And you might look at those pictures and say, wow, I, I can recognize, I, I can recognize, uh, one or two of these pictures. Um, and then there's a few others that don't, they're not at all familiar to me. And, and it, one of them might be the meeting, for example. Um, that that's not at all familiar to, to you. And all I can say is if the meeting is not at all familiar to you, then count your lucky stars. I'm very envious. I wish I knew nothing about meetings. But others will recognize, uh, others will recognize the, uh, character of the cartoon character from the Peanuts comics by, um, um, by, uh, Charles Schultz. Uh, that's the figure of uh, Snoopy, the dog. Um, some of you will recognise that picture from one, the film, 2001 A Space Odyssey. We've got a Geelong person, Bianca. Well done. Uh, Bianca has recognised uh, Geelong's finest and best-kept secret, the Sphinx Hotel. Um and uh and so that's a that's a pub in Geelong that's about forty-five years old, uh, but it is built to resemble ancient Egypt. Uh the Hindu picture is uh a character known as Ardhanarisvara. It's the combination of Shiva and Parvati the god and the goddess, male and female. And so it's a symbol of male and female union um, in around the Hindu god uh, Shiva. Um, the, uh, the picture of the woman with the veil and, um, and uh, with her exposed heart uh, will be, I think, familiar to many people as the Christian figure of Mary. Um the uh uh and maybe Bianca you were looking at the picture of um Oedipus and the Sphinx rather than the Sphinx Hotel. Uh in which case I take it all back. Uh because there are there's there is the Sphinx with Oedipus. Um people will recognise uh the clown. Um and we will be talking about clowns. Next to the clown in the middle uh, is another, but a statue of of Mary, uh, uh, La Pieta, that's right, or the Mata Dolorosa. Uh, and then to the bottom left-hand corner is a photograph of a U.S. Marine Corps drill sergeant drilling a new recruit. And we will be looking at that as well. So in this unit, we'll actually be looking at all of these things at some point in one way or another. And we'll be connecting them to the question of what it is 
that myth and ritual uh, involves. Here I want to tell you the basic thesis of the unit. This is a unit, you can think of this unit as being like an 11 week long essay. And I'm going to start by making my, my initial thesis, my initial assertion. And that is that human beings universally engage in practices of myth making and ritual performance. Such practices are typically associated with what some people call religion, a term that enables them to limit myth and ritual to specific peoples, times and concepts. In this unit, we will argue against that proposition and assert instead that myth and ritual are fundamental aspects of human being, thereby not limited simply to uh, religion and religious practice. So I'm going to make a case in this unit for the universality of myth and ritual as human practice and human creativity. And that the universality of myth and ritual as human practice is what lends myth and ritual uh, so much of its force to be involved in different religions of the world. But I'm going to make a case that, in fact, myth and ritual are prior to the religious systems that we think of as religion. So in that regard, this is not a unit about religion. It's a unit about myth and ritual. And this particular picture uh, that is, uh, and she will be uh, appearing when we talk about um, the myth, primarily the, known as the myth of Prometheus, when we look at Greek myth in about two weeks' time. This is a figure known as Pandora. Thank you, Bianca. Yep, well done, Pandora. Indeed. And uh, and that's just my bad attempt at a joke and a rude remark about how Scotty from marketing has raised the fees on BA degrees uh, because I think they're considered to be a little bit dangerous. They might make people think. So just as the last slide, this is my last slide for this lecture, and this is in relation to the reading for this week. It is an article by a very well-known, in his time, a very well-known American folklorist by the name of Alan Dundas. And Alan Dundas wrote, well, he lectured for many, many years at University of California, Berkeley, and uh, and he was instrumental in 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 sort of the development of the Department of Folklore Studies at at, in, at UC Berkeley, and uh, he focused on um, on Native American uh, mythologies, but he also extended um, his analysis of mythologies more broadly uh, to consider uh, different different mythical traditions in different places. 
in attempting to develop a method for the proper comparative study of uh, of, of myth, Dundas uh, drew heavily upon the work of the Austrian um, medical practitioner, therapist, founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. And he made a case for myth being an aspect of human behaviour whereby humans are giving expression to their unconscious desires. And so this is a theory of myth that Dundas was very active in promoting in America around the middle to the second half of the 20th century that tried to understand myth in terms of the human motivation for myth-making. So why humans would tell the stories that they tell. And this is tied very closely to a dominant concept of the 20th century, which is the concept of the unconscious. Now, what I'm going to argue, and this is why I want to start with this guy, is that the very notion of the unconscious, which is a core notion in psychoanalytic theory, absolutely central to psychoanalytic theory, this very notion of the unconscious, I'm going to argue, is itself part of the myth of the 20th century. It's one of the key myths of the 20th century is the idea of the unconscious. Now, around this idea of the unconscious and Freudian and, and Freudian thought is the idea that people are driven or motivated by the unconscious to tell the stories that they tell and thereby fulfill their unconscious desires, their, their, their wishes, their, what they would like the world to be. This particular story of the earth diver that Dundas is writing about in this particular paper is making a case for why we have myths where you have certain creator figures who make the world out of mud and clay and how they shape the world out of mud and clay. And the critical point is that in so many myths from different parts of the world, you find this theme coming up again and again of the world being created from a primordial mud or clay. And the question is, how do we interpret that? Now, Dundas attempts to give a certain kind of interpretation. And I've asked you all to read that as the first reading. And I do so in order to make you stop and think, well, A, do I think this guy Dundas is right or is he a bit crazy? And when I think of this craziness or correctness, 
What baggage am I bringing? What thoughts do I have about what human mythical thought is? What are my taken for granted assumptions about the nature of mythical thought that I bring to this unit, which is the study of myth? Now, it might be that you don't bring any at all, to which I say good. It might be, however, that you do bring certain ideas to the table about what you think myth is and where myth resides. And I just want us to start the whole ball rolling with this unit by saying, okay, where do we get those ideas from? I'm not saying you're right or wrong or anything like that. I'm just asking you to think about your prior assumptions about what it is that we're talking about. For example, myth is something we normally associate with religion. Okay, where does that come from? So that's what I'm going to ask us to think about and talk about after we read the Dundas piece in the seminars for the rest of this week. But as for now, though, I'm calling it a day. I've managed to do it within an hour. I'm happy. Um, and, uh, and I will speak to people during the seminars as, as we come along. Okay. Bye everyone. If I know how to stop it, I'll stop sharing and stop.